Welcome to the Avance Podcast. I'm Dan. And I'm Nick. How are you feeling, we, buddy? I'm I, <laughs> Apparently I'm gonna have this cough for a while, even though I don't I'm feeling better. But uh, I went I finally went to the doctor after two and a half weeks and I was feeling better, but apparently it's gonna be sticking around for a while. So uh, you know, if you see me, I'm not contagious, but uh, you know I'm doing my best. So yes. you sound like you're joking all the time. Well yeah. Well it's I mean, it's not like the bad stuff but it's every once in a while like you you're, i'm talking about it right now it's about to happen oh totally there you go hey at least at least we know how to mute nick's really good at muting well i'm getting better <laughs> at it I'm, i'll tell you that so yeah how are you my friend nice. oh pretty good we discovered a wasp nest in the front yard today so of course that's Ooh. an excuse to use the drone <laughs> uh, okay that's that's a different way to do that i mean just sort of stir it up a little bit i you know you're not that's the first great. It's ground hornets, so it's you know okay. it's it's the little things in Ooh, life, man. If you, okay. if you get a drone, you know you just hover it over the hole there and drive them insane and have a little chop suey fest. Uh, yeah, I'm learning something new. Okay, that's very we good use a, of a really good use good, of a, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll make the intro quick though. We have a really good guest today. I really want to dive into quickly, but first we're going to do our our Carter Automotive Group tip of the week. Um, this one actually was inspired by Volkswagen for us. So, did you know there is a new case to have drum brakes come back to vehicles? And it's what? not terrible, why? Why, right? Why, why, okay, why so would we want that? Drum brakes faded away from the cheapest vehicle, from most vehicles, almost all vehicles, and except for the Toyota Tacoma for some reason, and like a Mitsubishi cheap entry level Mirage, but um, because they don't dissipate heat very well, um, and they actually retain heat in cases, they, they went away. So cheaper to manufacture, keeps everything all in one, like the e-brake. But on an EV, one of the things they don't do, the one and only advantage they really have is they don't drag and disc brakes in general, the pad lightly touches the rotor. And sure. in an EV, all that braking is really done by the electric motor. Basically, going, it's regenerative braking, right? So if you don't need all the stopping capacity, or it can be, let's say, reclaimed by the regenerative factor of the motor, you can put a disc brake on there and get a little extra mileage because it's not dragging. And with EVs, it's all about range, it's all about efficiency. So yeah. on, you're seeing some newer vehicles, especially the Volkswagen ID3, ID4, and more to come. Uh, you're seeing these drum brakes make a comeback. Now they're still doing it in the rear because you don't. That's you know you still need your discs up front for the hardest stopping. But when you're barely using the rears as it is, which is typically, oh, on most street cars, what like 10, 15 percent of braking, yeah. <laughs> maybe more depending on a performance car. But average commuter car, that's about it. So this is the perfect case to bring back a a drum brake to get a little more range out of that motor. And they have like because they're using them so little because the motor's doing all the work. They have like a hundred and fifty thousand kilometer service interval is what I read. That's so that's good. pretty good. Um, yeah. yeah. So there is a case for drum brakes to stick around. It's cool that what's old is new and what's new is old kind of thing. So it's a circle, you know, no matter what. It's a circle. Yeah. Yeah, so, but if we know somebody who knows, well, everything there is to know about performance, it's our guest today. Uh, Nick, why don't you talk more? Because you, uh, you've, had, you've had the chance to talk to him before. Well, uh, fortunately, a couple of weeks ago, I, our guest today is Steve Celine. Uh, he is a, a man that if, you, if you're in the automotive industry, you know Celine Motor Cars. Uh, we, we got to interview his lovely daughter uh, several months ago, Molly, and I got to sit down with Steve and Molly in, in Monterey this year for Connected Cars. So uh, to the Avance podcast, I welcome Steve Celine. How are you, Steve? Good. Well, thank you. And I, I would add, from a race car driving standpoint, um, who actually uses brakes? Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. If, if you know how to drive, who needs to use the brakes? Brakes means you're going slow. So okay. there you so, go. You know, 
That's an official Celine quote. You know, if you, you don't need to be using your brakes. So yeah. save brakes, save money. So what downshifting's for. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Nick's dying over there again. All right. Yeah, Steve, um, like I said, I got to sit down with you uh, a couple weeks ago in Monterey. Thank you again for that to you and Molly. Um, you know, for the, the, the three people in the world that don't know who you are, can you kind of explain how Celine Motorcars came to be and, and how the fact that, you know, you, you're synonymous with the Mustang, with, with building the Ford GT, things like that. It, um, yeah, well, a little bit of background on me is I, I uh, was born and raised and grew up in Southern California. And uh, so he- heavy into the car club culture with, uh, you know, in the late 50s and through the 60s uh, was really a dramatic time for cars and performance, racing, all of that. And I grew up and I wanted to be a race car driver. And I actually pursued that uh, that interest. I, I actually, in uh, 1973, I entered my first race at uh, Riverside Raceway. And the worst possible thing happened is I won. And I should have just quit right then and there. But obviously, I was hooked, and uh, I go, wow, how hard can this be? And uh, wait, wait. I was right. I am a race car driver. Yeah. So, so it, uh, and it's been downhill ever since. No, but uh, so, so I, I pursued, but back then, real race car drivers didn't drive uh, production cars or sedan, they drove formula cars. So I sold, it was actually in a Mustang, uh, Shelby Mustang that I won my race in. And, uh, but after a number of races, I sold that and uh, uh, bought a uh, formula car and uh, uh, started racing that. Actually, I sold my house. I wasn't married at the time and uh, to buy a formula car. And we started racing formula Atlantics. And this is the era that, uh, the main Atlantic drivers that I competed with was um, with uh, Gilles Villeneuve, who drove for Ferrari and F1, uh, uh, K.K. Rosberg, who won the Formula One championship a number of years later. Uh, on the American side, on it, Bobby Rahal uh, competed with him and Danny Sullivan. And Rick Mears was my teammate. Uh, in Formula Atlantic uh, that they asked me to teach. Rick had just come off of desert racing, and he needed a little coaching on on road racing, and so they asked me to do it, and then they would pay my entry fee as well. So that's how I ended up being a teammate with uh, Rick Mears in that period of time. And then, um, obviously, from there, you either went into Formula One or into IndyCar. Neither one of those actually opened up for me initially, but I was offered a uh, drive by Pontiac Motor Company to drive professionally for them in the SCCA Trans Am series on this with all the makes, uh, but we did run a Pontiac Trans Am uh, car. Uh, And uh, and that's what introduced me to Detroit, introduced me to uh, uh, really kind of how Detroit operates. 
1982, we won the championship beating Ford Motor Company that was just coming back out of no racing. And for the people that saw Ford versus Ferrari, really shortly thereafter in 1969, or by the time they got to 1974, they had quit 100% all racing activities. And they didn't come back into racing until 1982. And I got to know the guys at Ford, and they were going to do a um, similar to what I was doing in Pontiac, special edition cars, and uh, but they were going to do a Mustang. And I said, wow, good choice. I won my first race in a Mustang, and I think that's the uh, American public would like that. Which model? And they said, well, we're going to do a four-cylinder turbo. And I kind of went, ooh, I think the American public would rather have a V8. And they said, well, we're committed to the four-cylinder turbo, Steve. But if you had interest, we might support you doing a, a version, a Celine version of the Mustang and with a V8. So in, 1980, in 1983, I left my position in Pontiac, started my own company doing the Celine Mustang. So that's Which how is- we got started. <laughs> Engine in the car. Yes. God bless you, sir. Yes. I mean, and, and and you have gone from, I mean, uh, working on the humble Mustang with a V8, you now have the Celine S1, you have the, the 302. You're even working on Teslas, correct? Yeah, it, it, there, there is a little bit of a, of a misconception that, that we, we, uh, that we've gone through over the years is that because when I started, I've taken, I took a Ford Mustang and completely revamped it into different aerodynamics, suspension, interior, and then eventually into uh, the powertrain, uh, adding either superchargers or just more horsepower or changing all of that. Um, it puts us into, if you will, the aftermarket tuner category, which actually is not really correct regarding our product because I had to go through the full certification, even crash testing Mustangs, to be able to sell it as a new vehicle off of a dealership showroom, complete with warranty and with um, with uh, uh, financing and everything as a new car purchase. And it is basically that path, or if you will, that skill set that allowed us uh, a number of years later to actually conceive and do our own ground-up car, the S7, of which we did everything, including the wheel bearings, door handles, you name it, of everything in the drivetrain, our own engine, and all of that. And then after we came out with that, that led me to get the contract to do the complete um, uh, engineering certification and all of that for the Ford GT40 of the 2005-2006 vintage that we did as private label for Ford Motor Company. And And we actually did all the engineering and the development of that car, crash testing, the certification, and the complete build, assembly, and shipping it to the Ford dealer, complete with the Ford window sticker and and labels on it. And and that is a story that I want to get into a little bit later, the, sort of the Celine versus Ferrari things. But I, I think that's a lot of people don't understand that, that you can walk into a Ford dealership and buy a Celine Mustang right off the floor as a brand new car. It's not a 
you know, I always think of like dining with BMW where you have to, you know, you have to buy aftermarket parts and yeah. things like that. So, yeah, we yeah. have, we had to set up our dealer base. We had to have all of the legal requirements with, uh, EPA, um, CARB, uh, DOT, all of the stuff, all the different state requirements, uh, back and forth makes it a little more complicated on doing it. But that's that, if you will, that, that background and uh, set of skills is what enabled us to do our own ground-up car with the S7. Then in doing as private label for the Ford GT, then after that program, we actually did uh, picked up the Dodge Viper for a couple years that we did as private label for Dodge uh, in, in doing that. And then uh, so that's where our, our set of... Uh, skills really is a little bit different to where we really are a a uh, high performance manufacturer very similar to mclaren or lamborghini or even ferrari in some respects on on doing that and that's that's where a lot of but we continue to do the changes on the mustang and the ford f-150 today too so we kind of offer the best of both worlds and then we've announced that that uh uh, in conjunction, I was doing uh, putting a plant together in China, uh, and then when the coronavirus came out, that that did not materialize. And then I've had to uh, we've dealt with the coronavirus over the last three years, but now I'm in a position to where we can now regain and come out with our own next generation, if you will, our sports car, our, our supercar, the S1 which we've already proven its capabilities on the tracks the last several years. Let's talk about that because that was the S7 was like immediately competitive. It was an immediately competitive car. And I don't think, I think now it's kind of cool to see it's getting a resurgence because the S7 was immediately exotic and immediately wanted. And then a lot of people didn't know about it because it was such a rare car. And now it's becoming, I mean, I, I watch the prices on these things. So I, I've seen it just go up and up and up and up and up because people are appreciating it for what it what it was and what it still is. Like even today, that car rips. <laughs> it, it is, uh, yeah, the the credentials of the S7 uh, are, are really, it's, um, it really has been it, um, and appropriately so. America's supercar, first supercar, on doing it. That uh, we were on the front cover of Road and Track, um, well, Car and Driver, Motor, all of the the car magazines on doing it. But it really has been dubbed, if you will, the first uh, American supercar. But it's it's credentials not only from the street standpoint, but it's racing pedigree. Uh, is very unique. The car has won at every major racetrack in the world with no exception. And I'm talking from Shanghai, China, Mount Fuji, Japan, um, Laguna Seca, Daytona, Sebring, Watkins Glen, New York, Silverstone, England, uh, Barcelona, Spain, Imola, Italy, Nürburgring, Germany, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Bahrain, and we finally won the 24 Hours of Le Mans in uh, 2010. And the S7 has more race wins than Ferrari, Lamborghini, and McLaren combined, all by privateer entrance. And so 
it's uh, to say that it has its uh, run of success would be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, and it's uh, man, I have admittedly tried to sit in one and realized that I am too big for one for most of the street. But man, do I want to get behind the wheel and take it for a spin? What an amazing car! I've dreamed about it since I first saw it, and who does it live up to the hype in person? It is a showstopper. It it is, and and what what's kind of I mean. We we started with a clean sheet of paper in 1999, December of 1999, and we showed it at the Pebble Beach Concourse weekend um, in August of uh, 2000. So it took us literally nine months to design it and build the first car to it. And then, then we had another year that went in the final certification before we delivered the first customer car. So a very short period of time. And it's gone on. We did, we did a little bit of information on uh, that people may be not aware of. When we came out with it, when we designed the car, we did, designed it for several years going forward. But when we came out at 550 horsepower, normally aspirated, that was the king of horsepower back in 2000. So we were the highest horsepower, then we got it through emissions. I will say that the emissions, it was actually because of the way that we did the exhaust and the timing and the calibration along with the uh, catalytic converters that we used back then, the emissions was actually cleaner than a Honda Civic at the time, uh, <laughs> even with that horsepower. And uh, But we designed it knowing that Ferrari and Lamborghini and Maserati would not stay still on this is that we designed it to take a couple extra supercharged or uh, turbochargers on it. So when Ferrari came out and up the ante with the Enzo Ferrari on this, we then added a couple extra superchargers and boost our horsepower from 550 up to 750 so we could still maintain, if you will, king of the mountain. Uh, on doing that. And then subsequently, as we got towards the end of the run on this, it uh, we were hitting a 1,000 horsepower. Today, we did a, a few, if you will, extensions of the S7. We have one more to deliver. And on E85, you're actually talking 1,500 horsepower and a car really that's capable of going over 300 miles an hour. Yeah, because Steve, they they the the S seven LM the fifteen hundred horsepower they, like that was with the, the the hypercar display at Peterson, right? You guys got invited to put yeah. a car there, which is amazing. And of course, for us, you know, us being Pacific Northwest, if you've been to LeMay when they had their Celine display, which was incredible. And I mean, I know you've done a lot of work with LeMay and 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 the America's Automotive Trust, so. Um, it's incredible to see those cars. Like like Dan said, I, I think I told you this too. Like the first time I ever saw one, there was somebody in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, that had one, and you know you didn't see you didn't see cars like that in Idaho and in Washington. So it was pretty. It was something pretty spectacular. And so. and and also, you know, it's been uh, we were in a lot of TV commercials and movies, and uh, we have as Bruce we Almighty. Have, I mean, everybody knows it from Bruce, Bruce Almighty. Almighty. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yes. and, and and since that movie came out. You know, where where uh, he trades places with uh, all, Jim Carrey trades places with the Almighty. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, uh, we have a saying around here, and that is the Pope being from Italy. The Pope may drive a Ferrari, 
but God drives an S7. So we've had we've had some fun 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 with that, and uh, we also had to on that movie. As another side note, uh, we had to uh, teach Jim Carrey to drive a stick on oh. the S7. And I will tell you that there, this was on the back lot of Universal Studios here in Southern California. And there is a, a tram ride that will never get over it because we came up over a hill and we almost ended up T-boning a, uh, one of the uh, tourist trams that they take on the ride there on it. But we were able, obviously, to stop. And then everybody realized, oh, that's Jim Carrey driving that car. And the cameras came out taking pictures and all of that. So. Well, I mean, your your cars are, are are have been in multiple films. I think didn't you even have a, a wasn't it the bad guy Mustang in Transformers? But didn't it play Barricade? Was one of your car, your Mustangs? Yeah, uh, if if we want to uh, join into movies a little bit, yeah, uh, on this, the uh, I can give you a little bit on how that came about. Um, sure. Is um, I had given a Selene Mustang to Michael Bay, who was the director for Transformers for the original. And when I went over, and he drove it for a week or two, and when I went over to pick it up, he had just gotten back from the studios where they had green-lighted and gave up thumbs up to write the script and go into production on the first movie, Transformers. And he said with all of the attention that he got driving around the Selene Mustang, he was going to cast it as the lead in the movie Transformers. And I go, great, that'll work. Then about a month later, I get a phone call from him, and he says, well, Steve, I have good news and I have bad news. And I go, great. Well, what's the bad news first? And he says that General Motors, specifically Chevrolet, has come into the studios, and they've written a great big promotional check to the studios, making that the studios need to feature a Chevrolet in their movies. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to move the Celine Mustang from the lead good guy, which was the Autobots, to the lead bad guy, the Decepticons. And uh, and so I said, no, we're considered a badass car anyway, so that'll make sense to be, be the police uh, car there as the Decepticon. And so I said to him then, I go, well, what's the good news? And he says, well, we've decided that we want to do the new Chevrolet Camaro that Chevrolet just showed the first prototype at the Detroit Auto Show earlier that year, but we need to have running cars for the chase scenes. And if we got you hooked up with Chevrolet and got you all of the CAD data, could you uh, replicate a couple cars for us? And I said, yeah, probably. So we ended up taking um, the Pontiac GTO at the time, chop and channeling it, we got all the CAD data from Chevrolet. We cut the exterior body, the interior panels. I took a Chevy drivetrain, put it in the Pontiac, and uh, uh, completed the car. Uh, I said, what color do we paint it? He says, it needs to be a bright color. And I said, well, how about yellow? And he said, that will work. I said, what shade? And he says, ah, oh, you pick. So I picked the shade of Bumblebee. was not a GM color. I actually picked that shade, uh, and we painted uh, two of the cars and, and uh, finished the Celine Mustangs and delivered them to White Sands, New Mexico, 
in time for the shooting of the movie Transformers. Such a cool wow. song. Yeah, such a cool, cool story. Yeah. Is it, I'm sorry, I'm is it to harass and enslave on, yeah, barricade? on the side of Barricade? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I love that car. It was so badass. Yeah. Oh, man. It's funny. I, I was looking through today about like all the movie placements Celine has had, and I, I would challenge anybody in our audience to just look through that because the number of Celine cars in movies is incredible. It's way more than you think. Just the S7 alone has been in like 20 movies, but the Mustangs and everything else you've worked on has it's just massive. Like your Hollywood presence is actually understated, I think, by the general public. I don't think people understand just how big Celine has made movies become and how much of an influence you've had on the current Hollywood, I guess, uh, the current Hollywood cars. Yeah, we, we, we have. We were uh, one of the first movies we were in was in the 90s, and that was Varsity Blue. And uh, the uh, school Great teacher, movie. the science yes, teacher the stripper, there, she, the the, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was very appropriate. She was at night a stripper and uh, the uh, science teacher during the day. So, but she could afford a Celine Mustang. So that was in that. But what was what was kind of foretelling was that was the first movie that Paul Walker was was in, and uh, obviously he and both Roger Rodas were very good friends. And they had in their collection they had twenty three Celine vehicles that they had in their collection and three S sevens. Amazing. Um, I want to talk about something a little specific. In 1997, when you and, and Tim Allen went to Le Mans with, with Mustang, uh, like the first time Mustang had been there in, what, 30 years, something like that? Yeah, it, um, it is. Um, uh, yeah, it, you know, they talk about a lot by history ends up repeating itself, and it certainly does. Just recently, Ford up at Monterey announced that they were doing a wide-body, independent, different engine. Uh, Mustang that they're planning on taking to Le Mans. And I feel like it's 1999 all over again, because actually we did the same thing on doing a different engine, a wide body, set the engine back, different transmission, a full independent rear suspension, the latest in aerodynamics, and took the cars to Le Mans. And uh, so it, uh, the only other time a Mustang actually had competed was actually in 1965 with an independent uh, person competed with the Mustang. And then we were the first ones to show up 30 years later um, with the, uh, as the French pronounce it, the Mustang, the Mustang uh, on that. So that, that drove quite a bit. And, and uh, so we've, we've had that experience on that. Yeah, very cool. Okay, well, I want to kind of get into this, and I know it's going to be a longer story. So let's talk about how when Ford came to you and said, we want you to, to basically design, build, and everything, the new Ford GT, and how that turned into, I mean, and this this involves the S7, too, on how that involves Ferrari and what kind of happened in that whole situation. Well, yes, as, as I mentioned, that we, we were under contract. It was actually two separate contracts. One was the engineering contract to complete. Uh, with the head engineer being a Celine employee, Neil Hanneman, um, uh, on the Ford GT program in 2000. Actually, it started in 2004, 5, 6 uh, timeframe. And then uh, and then we were responsible for 
the complete uh, build and assembly and shipping of the vehicle. I even had to hire UAW workers. I've done a UAW contract uh, as well that worked out very well um, on this and putting up a facility back in Detroit. But um, we were, and that was all based on where we were doing with the S7. And as I mentioned, the F7, we really have kind of our own Celine versus Ferrari story, which is what I think you were getting at, Nick. Yes. Uh, on that. And that is that in um, 2001, we, we had two, two teams in the U.S. and two teams in uh, Europe that campaign in, two, in four different series. And the S7, as I mentioned, won all four championships that year in the different in the different series. And we continued on supporting the privateer teams. When we got to, so in uh, similar success in 2002, 2003, when we got to 2004, competition had obviously increased a little bit. And in one particular race, we had a, uh, that, uh, and if people will remember in Formula One during, the 2002, 2003, 2004, Ferrari with Michael Schumacher as their main driver was dominating Formula One, very similar to what we see today with uh, Red Bull. Uh, and, uh, yeah. yeah. And um, so they hadn't lost any race. As it turned out, in uh, late or early fall, we had a race that was scheduled at Imola, Italy and Imola, for those that don't know, is Ferrari's home track. It is actually just not too far from Ferrari's headquarters, and you actually race on what they call the Dino Ferrari circuit. Um, and in honor of that, it was a weekend between two Formula One races. So Ferrari decided that they would bring out their new supercar, is was the Maserati MC12 which in essence was the Enzo Ferrari on steroids on it. It was longer. It had better aerodynamics and all of this. And they, to do that, they had their Formula One team, who was headed up by Jean Todd at the time, oversee the Maserati Ferrari uh, run. And they had Mick Asalo, who was the second driver to Michael Schumacher as their lead one, and then the other person in the other car was Luca Bedore, who was the Ferrari F1 test driver at the time, um, to run the two cars. And in honor of it, since it was their home track and they wanted to make a big splash and debut the Maserati MC12s, they invited all of the European press and journalism as their guests to come visit and watch them compete heads up in the field here in the FIA GT Championship at Imola. And uh, they, in honor of that, they had set up a big circus, they soleil, three-ring circus in the paddock area where they had uh, famous Italian chefs cooking the dinners for their guests. They had a uh, full orchestra that they had entertainment uh, in between the race events. And they even had a uh, fashion runway show with uh, supermodels part of the weekend to uh, to uh, debut their their new uh, 
their new race car with the so just a simple setup then, huh, Steve? Just not, just something yeah, simple from yeah, Ferrari, yeah, just, sure. your, just your normal setup. And, sure, uh, yeah. The uh, and then the day of the race, uh, Luca uh, De Montemazzello showed up, and at the time, next to the Pope, I would say he was the second most popular person in all of Italy, and he had taken over the controls of Ferrari after Enzo had passed and had really developed, and they were really high on the Formula One team, as you recall, as I mentioned, was was doing really well and um, really dominating it. So so he showed up with the entourage, and you, you, you knew that either the Rolling Stones or it was the same as a Taylor Swift concert, which just fans uh, galore to watch this. And this race was uh, live on Eurosport TV. It was an endurance race. A Ferrari had qualified on the pole. I believe we had another independent S7 that was second. A German independent, which was the main team that we were supporting at the time, uh, was third. Another Ferrari. And then they had the two Maseratis and the rest of the 40 field with the Porsches and all the other uh, assortment of vehicles um, to fill out the, the 40 a car field. The race started, and as it progressed on this, a Ferrari led for about a dozen laps. Then, kind of on cue, the the uh, German S7 team came through, and then the, on cue, the two Maseratis, which had been sandbagging in qualification, came through, and it ended up being a race as the hours progressed and. We were looking at it on TV, and pit stops were made. Um, it became a, uh, a race between the three cars. And as it turned out, it's all three cars came in for the last pit stop down pit lane. They all took on uh, uh, fuel, uh, new tires, new rubber, and put in their number one driver uh, in that. And I remember looking at at the uh, event, and basically almost all three cars went out of pit lane all at the same time, which meant that the last section of the race was going to be a sprint race. And I'm pleased to announce that the S7 lapped one of the Maseratis, and we finished 45 seconds in front of the second (laughs) Maserati, winning the race, bringing the total here on their home track, to uh, back to the U.S. here. And so that is a, uh, a little bit of our Celine, which was really the David against the Goliath uh, story that, that we're talking about. And Luca had to get up in front of all of his invited guests and all the press and say, wow, we were no match today for the Celine S7. And uh, it, it was terrible. They came in second and third. On this, and the next day, the newspapers in Italy headlines read it was Ferrari's worst loss of the year because they hadn't really had any of that, and that the other newspaper had it to where the Ferrari was no match for Celine, and so obviously we left very, very happy with that, and um, like I said, that was in the early fall, that Christmas. Um, I got a Christmas card, though, from uh, Ferrari congratulating me on on our win and uh, the success that we had in the championship. 
on doing it. So I thought, wow, that was very, very good in all of that. And then it was during this period of time that we were putting together the facility that I was putting back in Detroit area to build the Ford GT. And so I decided that I would want to tour all of the high-performance manufacturers around the world. So I made appointments and went. I visited both plants at the time for Aston Martin, went to Lotus, went to Jaguar, went to Bugatti in France, ended up going to Lamborghini in in Italy, all welcomed me with open arms and gave me a first-class uh, behind-the-scene tour in uh, all of this. I had set up an appointment with Ferrari, and I got to the front gate of Ferrari and announced that we were there, and the gentleman looked at us and looked in the paperwork and goes, whoa, I'm sorry, we don't seem to have any credentials here for you, Mr. Selene. So we made some frantic phone calls back to, to our PR agencies where we had set it all up, and then it came back, and they said... Um, no, I'm sorry that there is no opportunity for us. We would not be allowed to go into the Ferrari facility. So very disappointed. I tell you, I've been at the Red Planet Hotel across the, the street from Ferrari. I've eaten at the Enzo Ferrari ca Cafe, and I bought a little keepsake at the Ferrari gift shop there um, on our visit. But I was denied by Ferrari any actual tour or visit in that. And then as life goes on, though, um, uh, we then got heavily involved with doing the Ford GT on the certification. And one of the things that had to take place was the um, we had to do the top speed verification uh, on the Ford GT. And we decided that the Nardo test track that Pirelli uses was probably the best place to actually get the best uh, results and accurate results that we needed. And that, in Nardo, which is, um, so we set, we shipped over a red Ford GT with the white stripes um, down the center, and they did the uh, top speed test at Nardo, which actually came out to 205.3 mile an hour, and very happy with that. And after that, I instructed um, the driver to literally drive down a few blocks down the street to the front gate of Ferrari, rev the motor, drop the clutch, and lay two burnout marks down the front with a one-finger salute to, uh, me to Ferrari for a thank me to visit them. Steve, I have to tell you, I have been talking about interviewing you in, in, in Concorso, and I've told nobody this story because we had – I don't know if you know this. People that were at that breakfast that you did that out, several people came up to me and they go, that is the best story, automotive story I've heard. And I absolutely love it. And it, you know, it's just American. I didn't even tell Dan really. Uh, no. I wanted him to kind of hear the story. So thank you for telling that story. I really appreciate it. Thank you for yeah. not telling me, Nick. It was much better heard yeah. from Steve's mouth. That was great. Yeah. Yes. So it, it's, cool. a, it's a little bit long because you have to set up the uh -huh. the – Worth the, it, the <laughs> thing. But but at the end of the day, you know, I feel that we've satisfied what we need to do, and then we'll move on. Uh, and just a little bit of a backstory. So before the breakfast, Steve and I—that's the first time we had met. Like I said, I had met Molly. 
And I and I said I said we didn't really had know what we were talking about. He looks at me, whispers, he goes, "I think I've got a really good story that's sort of Celine versus Ferrari, if you don't mind." And I was like, "Sure, whatever." I had no idea that it was going to be that epic of a story. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. And it it, it was interesting because most of the the uh, people in the audience were Ferrari owners. <laughs> yeah, they, everybody loves a good story like that, though. I mean, you, you Ferrari guys loved this. it more than anybody. I mean, yeah. I mean, because the Ferrari guys deal with Ferrari, so they understand. So they absolutely loved it. So, yeah. And the Ford GT went on to be, you know, so much. It's, it's. I mean, even just for not just its regular motorsports wins. I mean, like the the top speed records. It's it's now holding for modifications. Like that's one of the most bulletproof, best chassis ever made, and one of the best motors that's ever made. Like. It has the records to prove it. There's not really an opinion here I'm interjecting. It's this car has proven to be the toughest, fastest, pretty much most badass thing to ever come out of America. And it's proving it still today with the owners that are just using that car. It's not just collecting dust like a lot of these. That car gets used all the time. We still hear about it in the news. It's great. Yeah. No, it's been been a a lot of fun. And it was uh, we set up the plant. We did. Roughly um, eight eight vehicles per day on one shift is what what we got our our volume uh, up to on that, and we built a little over a little over four thousand units during that two and a half year. Absolutely, it's amazing. probably the best investment you can make in an automobile if you've ever looked at prices and resale on a Ford GT. Yes. Yeah, not as good as the original, if not better, <laughs> a lot more drivable. So, Steve, talk to us about a little bit about the the S one. I know because, I, like I said, I know a lot of people know it as a race car. You're now going to be able to you're presenting it as a street car, and people are starting to put in their orders for that. But how did that kind of come around? Like, what made you go? This is this is the platform we kind of want to go with. Well, again, we 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 built the supercars with the S seven, uh, and and even you know at the prices on it, it's pretty much in a very stratosphere of what people can afford and i was looking at after doing the ford gt i realized that we could actually do a more um cost effective level of a supercar and so when i had the opportunity here um with uh uh some of the funding that i did with a uh joint venture with the chinese uh, government on this, we were able to look at building the supercar or next generation, which was always going to be built here in Corona uh, initially. Eventually, we would put a plant for the build of it over in other parts of the world, uh, China specifically, but but it was always uh, geared to here. So we, we embarked on it and we spent uh, a lot of time and money on the development of that car. And we were um, by the time, so we announced it um, at the LA Car Show at the end of, uh, literally at the end of the year in December of 2017, and then we spent the year 2018 doing all the development. As we were getting ready to actually launch and finish up the certification and go into production in 2019, we thought that we would actually show its its uh, pedigree. And we created the Celine Cup, where we had 20 of the S1s compete at all a lot of the famous racetracks um, with a lot of 
wide variety of drivers. We had the pro drivers. We had the beginning drivers, uh, uh, all walks of life. Uh, uh, we had, I think there was five or, or uh, six uh, women that were driving the, uh, the car. And we had actually the first gentleman that was had uh, autism uh, qualified to actually race the car. And he almost ended up winning the championship. He came very close to almost to the, to the tiebreaker. But we ran the cars, and the cars were very fast. Uh, but everyone said to me that um, it, it's one thing if all the cars are Celine, and when they asked what car is going to win, it was easy to tell you that it was going to be a Celine because all of them were Celines uh, on this. But at the end of that calendar year in the 2019, we ran a couple of independent races where the car won against all makes um, in the two races that we competed uh, in that. And then, unfortunately, then at the beginning of 2020 is when the coronavirus came out. It came out in first in China, which then affected our ability to work with the Chinese government anymore. And then, um, and that's another story by itself, but we don't have time for that chapter today. But the... Uh, um, it, uh, uh, and then the coronavirus affected the shutdown here. So we weren't able to do any racing. So as we've started to come out of the coronavirus from our standpoint on it, we campaigned the car in uh, selected races last year, led several of them. Uh, and then, um, uh, I've also, uh, ran the car, uh, in July of this year, I was invited to a uh, race up in Seattle area, Pacific Raceways, as the Grand Marshal, and they wanted me to give charity rides. So I took one of the S1s up there, put a seat in it, and uh, gave rides for charity. And the uh, organizer said, wow, you're going pretty good. Would you want to consider competing in our big, our main event, the Big Boar Race? on this and i kind of thought about it and i go okay and then they said well you have to start at the back of the pack and that was 35 cars in that race which were all uh some vintage cars but also the latest in the gt4 category and uh so i ended up entering that race and i competed in it and again the worst possible thing happened is i ended up winning again <laughs> so i only drove that that yeah i haven't forgotten how to drive a race car and how capable the S1 is as our development. And so now what we're doing is we are looking at getting the S1 now actually into production. The only thing I need to do is all the main tooling and everything we have spent, uh, really we've spent about $70 million in the development of the car up until the coronavirus so all I need really do is to complete the certification that I basically have to pay third parties for, not for crash testing, but for airbag deployment, for the tailpipe emission, and for headlight and, and taillights. Those require just payments to third parties to compete it, complete it, then we can go into production. So to do that, we've announced that we are actually doing kind of what they call a crowdfunding Regulation A, a money raise, and over the next uh, period of time here, you will see is that 
that we are doing, and that's actually gone very successful. We've been at it now, uh, not quite uh, sixty days on this, and we've we've raised quite a bit of money to it. So I look at in the real near future that will be enough to complete our certification, and we will actually be in production with the S1. And it is a very potent car. And the the thing that I can see, Nick, you're asking, or talk about the specs of the car itself. It is a uh, it is a, a two seater mid engine. It's an aluminum chassis, all carbon body on this, but we have it as a uh, four cylinder uh, single turbo that puts out though four hundred and fifty horsepower out of a two point two liter. So that gives you an idea of the 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 uh, uh, efficiency of the engine. And because we're using a lightweight aluminum chassis with a carbon body, the whole car only weighs 26, 2,700 pounds. And so its power to weight ratio puts us in the same league as a supercar uh, that is in today. And um, uh, so its performance, that's why on the track racing against the McLarens or Ferraris or Porsches or some of the Corvettes uh, and all of that, the car has been uh, has done very well to where we've had really, from a racing standpoint, had to handicap it by adding more weight and restricting how much boost we can run out of the turbo to to be that. But the street car will not re- have any of those limitations, so it'll be a, a very very fast and a, a very um, uh, exotic. Uh, sports car and what's nice though is because of the way that we've done the construction and the amount of tooling and the way we've geared it is that we're anticipating the retail price to be in the 125 to 130,000 price uh, out the door with leather interior and and all the things so it actually not that that's an inexpensive car but for what you get it becomes a very um, cost-effective and a, a very uh, a car that opens it up to a lot more people that want to have a supercar feel but can't afford the million-dollar pricing. Yeah, you're, you're competing kind of directly with Lotus and even Corvette with the new C8 below the new Z06, but higher in performance. And with that weight ratio, we can finally go back to the people who don't even know how good it feels to drive a lightweight fast sports car that you can rev out because weight is the killer of fun for most cars these days and people just don't know it because everything's heavy now but if you grew up like like nick and i did and they like you so we we had that sweet spot of driving like the lotus exceed and things like that where you got to feel how fun it was to toss a little car around with not a lot of weight and that that power output though that's where it's really at you really hit a sweet spot there especially with mid-engine too because you actually have grip <laughs> so and, and and dan it, it is what you're saying you know to your listeners on it they it, it it is unless you experience it really is hard to explain why you would have a lightweight car and the benefits of of that and and the fact that we're doing a four-cylinder in this day and age where everyone's talking electric we're still looking at gasoline but really the fuel economy of this car actually will be very reasonable as well. You know, yeah. Steve, one, 
I was going to say one of the best things about talking to Steve is he, he answered every single question I didn't get a chance to answer uh, ask because he, he could see it in my face. Because, I mean, like I was going to touch on that, the price being such an incredible entry level. I mean, when you look at some things that's up against, it's, you know, half a million dollar cars. So and it's a beautiful car. If you uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it, definitely go to Celine.com and look at it. It's a beautiful, beautiful car and it will. It, it's very hard to describe because it's, it's unique in, in, a, in a world where a lot of things are alike. So, and, yeah. Yeah. And it is, we invite everyone. And we also, if, this is a great opportunity. I know we're talking cars, but what, what we're doing from an investment standpoint with the company on this is uh, an opportunity where a lot of people maybe can't afford a car, but they could actually afford a piece of the company. And uh, that opportunity really is very unique because as we march forward here on it, we're looking at a much higher higher way that, that, you know, the future can't tell us where we're going to end up, but I know where we want to go, and, and I think what we're offering now will be a very rewarding in a not-too-distant future. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, there's some, you know, diehard Celine fans out there that I'm sure that will be glad to be a part of that, and I think, you know, uh, be a part of the company, because, I mean, if you've ever been to a, a, a meet, you know, the, the all the Celine cars stand out. I mean, no matter what, and and everybody always assumes, you know, in in my mind, puts you with Mustang. But I mean, you have put your hands on so many cars. I mean, Challengers and Ford and everything. So it's pretty incredible. And like we talked with Molly, you guys are going to be tackling the Bronco here pretty soon too. So which is really cool. Yeah, there. I, yeah. I can't say much about it. There, if you go on our no. website, you can see the uh, the Olympia. Um, Livery that Parnelli Absolutely. Jones drove to the Baja yep. 1000 a couple years in a in a row. We aren't we aren't really advocating drinking and driving. However, no. with the uh, Olympia beer sponsorship, it seemed to be appropriate on this particular application. Especially with a lot of our listeners coming from Washington and living in Olympia and knowing the old Olympia Brewery, we we understand that. So yeah, yeah that's yeah, wonderful. You, you yeah. guys can identify with that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and I don't care what he says. Everybody will tell you the best looking cars of the era were the cigarette cars and the is and the liquor the liquor cars because yeah. those the, the best liveries in racing. Those were just awesome. And back looking back in my childhood, the Marlboro, you know, McLaren and all that. Yeah. Anyway, bless you, Nick. <laughs> Nick is like surviving by a thread. I'm proud of him, man. <laughs> He's like, show us, go on. All right, I'm I'm, ver- I'm very convenient with the mute button. So yeah. Well, uh, um, go ahead, Nick. Yeah. No, you you you, you go. <laughs> I was just going to invite everyone to check out Celine dot com. Um, check out Celine on Instagram to see all the latest stuff. I mean, you guys are movers and shakers. You've been a name in the industry for well, since, ever since our childhood. Growing up with your cars, we talked to Molly about that. Like how like the coolest kids in town. Like we saw the the. Um, the F-Body Mustangs. Yeah. yeah. I, I was, was going to say congratulations on 40 years, Steve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. This year it marks our 40th anniversary. Another not well-known fact is that the Celine Mustang, with the exception of the Ford Mustang itself and the Chevrolet Corvette, the Celine Mustang nameplate is the longest continuing nameplate sold in North America. Wow. So that's a really cool fact. Um, I, that that's a little known fact as well. And then speaking of Mustang here, in the next month you will see our new version of the 2024 Mustang, and I'm sure you will not be disappointed with the Celine 
uh, version of that. And uh, we've already announced the horsepowers as well over as normally aspirated as well over as a white label as well over 500 horsepower. Then we bump up to the supercharged yellow label, which will be 745 horsepower. And then our black label will be over 800 horsepower on this. And uh, But I think when you see how we've addressed it, and if you look at our history and what we've done, that you'll, you'll look at what we've been able to uh, achieve with, uh, with the latest version of the Mustang. And the one thing that I think will surprise is what we're doing on the interior of the car. Looking forward to seeing that. And are you guys going to touch the GTD at all? I know how limited it is, but the must the the mid engine GTD Mustang that they just came out with. You talked about it earlier. Is there any? Is there one of those made it into your hands yet? Well, I don't. I think our black label will be similar to it, but but you'll be able to uh, buy the black label Mustang and two S ones for the price of the. GTD, so, so I think we'll <laughs> yeah. have a, a cost advantage there in that yeah. respect. But they, Ford's done a very good job with that car. The, the uh, I think people don't realize the equipment and what they've done to that car. It, that is a that is beyond a serious car on that. And oh yeah, it, it's the the uh, the way that they've applied for it, and that and that, that's what it's going to take because. To compete in the GT3 category, which is where they want to compete, it, you you have to have that level on this. Otherwise, you won't you won't even you'll be you'll be lapped every other lap if you don't. Yeah, yeah. crazy yeah. stuff. Well, Steve, I really appreciate you taking time. I know you're extremely busy right now, and thank you so much for for doing this. Uh, you know, and uh, thank you for Molly for making this happen because uh, I <laughs> reached out to her and I was like, please. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and we we love everyone up in the Seattle area and the greater Absolutely. area on that. And we had our our uh, Celine exhibition was for two years there at the LeMay Museum in uh, in Tacoma on that. And uh, we bring a car up on occasionally and and uh, have had some sweepstake cars as a promotion with them. And but if they're in the area there, they can go into the gift shop because we have the Celine book in there with all of our cars in there as well. So I'll put in a, a, a plug here for the uh, how great of the museum that is. Absolutely. We and we agree that. with you. We, we, we love all those guys down there and they've been a big supporter of the show. So uh, thanks again. We, we look forward to having you on the show in the future to talk about more of, of products from Celine. So. Yeah, I'd love to have you back when that S1 launches so we can talk yeah. more about it because I want to get behind the wheel and take one for a spin and then talk with you about it more. I think that'll be fun. So yeah, Very good. So thank you Excellent. for having me. And we'll, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. For this episode of the Avance Podcast, as always, I'm Nick. And I'm Dan. And don't just get there. Enjoy the drive.